In the Old Testament, Jews were God's chosen people and the foreign nations were, well, not usually looked at in a positive light. Now this makes a lot of sense because foreigners had their own gods that they worshipped and they often led the Jews astray by getting them to worship these foreign gods, which totally goes against the first commandment. But there were a few times in the Old Testament where foreigners are actually looked at very positively because they demonstrated faith in the true living God. Now. Jesus, during his first sermon in the temple, he actually pulls out a scroll from Isaiah and he reads it declaring that the year of the Lord is here and that his mission is to preach the good news and to set the captives free. Now he tells us who this mission is going to include by bringing up two foreigners in the Old Testament who had faith in the true living God. He reminds us that during a severe famine, there is this widow in this town called Zarephath in the region of Sidon who demonstrated faith. And also, there was a guy named Naaman from Syria who had leprosy, but he believed that God could heal him. And guess what? He cleansed himself with the prophet's instructions and he was healed. So, of all things to mention, why does Jesus mention these two foreigners in his very first sermon? Well, it's because Jesus' gospel includes all nations. And remember, Luke's audience was mainly to witness to the Gentiles. So this is why Luke is going to include this very important part of Jesus' ministry. So there you go. A little bit about foreigners, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. Father, we just pray for tonight. We thank you for the rain that's it's watering our grass and, and watering our plants. We thank you for this opportunity to come tonight. Father, to focus on your word again, to get words that give us comfort and healing and strength and hope. And Lord, just reminders that you've got us as we go through this life. Father, life is hard, but you are good. And so we pray that you would remind us of these promises again and again as we go through your pages of your word. And we pray that tonight in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So we're going to be in chapter 4. I, I know we didn't finish the chapter, end of chapter 3, but it's a long genealogy, and Mike kind of hit that a little bit last week, and so I'll let you kind of peruse those names. I guess some highlights are uh, he was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, so that's something. Um, it also, Mike talked about that Luke takes the genealogy all the way back to Adam, which is significant because, again, it shows that God came for all people, and so that's uh, enough for that. You can look at Mike's uh, video on the website website and, and kind of catch yourself up as far as the, the rest of the genealogy goes. So in chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry in many ways. And so I'll begin in verse 1. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, we talk about this in Mark, and we talked about this in Matthew, but there's a lot of parallel to the temptations that Jesus went through and the temptations that Israel went through in the wilderness. Okay, and you'll see in each one of those, it really attacks one of the things that Israel failed miserably in, in the wilderness, which is 40 laps around the desert. And it shows in a wonderful way how Jesus didn't, how he is faithful to God, how he continued to give, uh, fight against Satan with God's word, and how he succeeded in all these different things. And so it shows the starkness of the difference in how they responded, but the same temptations. 
So that's just part of that. Now, when you think about temptation, what do you think about? Now, in Arizona, we have a lot of temptations and reasons not to come to church. For example, today we had the Phoenix Open. And for a lot of people, that's a big deal. And, and that would be a temptation to go to that instead of church. You got the rain, which in Phoenix is like 40 below back east, you know. For whatever reason, they equate it the same. I don't know. It's cloudy, you know. So, so But people this morning, it was amazing. They braved the rain and they braved the Phoenix Open. And they said, God first. And we had tons of people here this morning. It was amazing. But you put out a little football game and like half the people like disappear. So it's crazy. Temptation. That's what Jesus went into the desert to, to, to face. Now this was also a very purposeful thing. Uh, Jesus knew that God was going to bring him in to the desert to tempt him for 40 days. To allow, well, actually to allow him to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. God does not tempt, but Satan does. And so he knew it was going to be a difficult time. He knew it was for his own good. He knew it was to focus him for the task, for the ministry, for the purpose for which he came to this earth. And so he was getting himself ready. And this was a very important time for him in prayer, in communion with God, and also to deal with so many of the things that come at us in this life. And so it goes on and says, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Now, if you remember back in the wilderness with the Israelites, they would complain from time to time. Anybody remember that? You know, they go a few days without food and they're like, we're hungry. Or they go a few days without water and they're like, we're hungry. Now, to be fair, a few days is, is a little bit more than, you know, a few hours like our kids do sometimes when, when, when they're hungry, right? So, not having anything to drink for a while is a deal, isn't it? We even have water bottles up front for the pastor in case he gets a little parched, you know, because it's hard to talk when you're, when you're thirsty. So these weren't insignificant trials that the Israelites faced. Now, we read through Scripture and we think they were just, you know, whining for different reasons. But no, you go several days without water and you're in trouble. And you don't see on the horizon an answer to that. You go several days without food and you're just flat out hungry and weak. And if you don't see an answer to that on the horizon, you start to get worried. Legitimate concerns, legitimate needs. It's then that they would start crying out to God and complaining. And each time God would say, okay, let's open up some water for you. And there was water. Or, or okay, let's give you some quail from heaven. And, and, and there was quail or manna every morning. Let's put out some food for you every morning. And, and just to show you that I've got you in the midst of life. I think there's a wonderful parallel just to remind ourselves that no matter what the, the adversity, no matter what the struggle, no matter what the problem, God's got us. Even when we don't see the answer readily at hand, guess who does? God does. There's a wonderful story back from that time in, in the wilderness. Uh, they were crying out because of water. You know, they were complaining. There's no water. We're thirsty. And they were. But here's God's perspective. They're in Mara. Five miles away is Elam. And in Elam, they had, I don't know, 12 springs, I think it was, all these palm trees, which had all this fruit to them, more than enough water to, 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 to satisfy their needs for, for a long time. But they were in Mara, and they couldn't see. I guess they didn't have scouts that went out that far, but they, they didn't know that only five miles away, the next stop along the way was God's plan to fill that need. And so they started freaking out. So the encouragement as we go through life is to continue to rely on the Lord who can see our struggles, who can see the answers to our struggles, and to rely on him most. Does that make sense? Even when we can't see, even when we can't control, to rely on him most. And, and if you get that, you'll see how Jesus combats this a little bit. 
And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. In other words, we're going to trust in the Lord to provide. Now, it would have been sinful for Jesus if he was hungry to turn a bread or some stone into bread. Probably not, but, but he knew this was a time of testing. He knew this was a time of doing without. He knew this was a time of spiritual testing as he was going through and getting ready for his ministry. He knew it was not God's will to provide for him yet. He knew he would be going against that in every way and taking matters into his own hand if he were to make bread at this point. And so he knew he just needed to be patient and to rely on God. You ever feel like forcing things when God isn't coming through right away? I mean, you don't see the answer. You're not responding yet. You probably know if you could take a step back that he's got it planned, but you're like, man, it's got to happen faster. You know, my, my daughter right now, she's, well, she's not here so I can talk, but you know, she's, she's starting to be interested in boys and all that kind of stuff. She goes, dad, I just, there's just nobody. There's just nobody that fits the stuff that I'm looking for. You know, there's nobody out there. And, and you know, when you're like that and you're lonely and you just want a boyfriend, right? Because you've never had a boyfriend. You just want a boyfriend. Is it easy to see how you, how you might compromise? You might just try to force things? It's hard to wait on the Lord. Or how about you look at your bank account and you have all these bills that are coming due and you're scared and you're not sure how you're going to juggle it all. It's hard to wait and trust in the Lord, right? It's hard to, when you got, all of a sudden you're at a doctor's visit and they ran some tests and you know what the tests are and you're scared and it's hard to trust the Lord, isn't it? But guys, he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. He cares about you more than you can possibly know. He's got a plan for your life and he's continuing to work things for your good. I don't know why he asks us to go through these hard seasons except to grow us, right? We talked about in the early service today, to mature us, all those different things. But I just have to acknowledge there are hard times. But even in those hard times, God's got an answer in line. He's got another season that's better for us to go through. He's still in control. And that's one of the the first things as we look at this first test of Jesus. Jesus reminded Satan, God's got me. You can tempt me all all you want, but but God's got me. And after this was all done, and and Matthew says he's got sent a bunch of angels and they took care of all his needs and he was fine. But God's got me. I'm going to rely on him, not on myself. And then the devil took him and showed him the kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the world in, the, in a moment and of time and said to him, to you I will give all the authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will just worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now you think back to the wilderness times and there was a, a country called Moab and they saw that they were going to be overrun by Israel and so they uh, said, hey, why don't we just be friends, right? And you worship our gods and sleep with our women. I guess that was part of the worship thing going on and deceived a lot of Israelites. They began to do idolatrous things as a result of that and all of a sudden God got angry with Israel. Why? Because they'd worshipped another god. Because they turned their back on who he was. There's always a temptation in life to go the easy way, right? And Jesus, you know, it wasn't just that he wanted to take the easy way here. Being king of this world was never his purpose, was it? It was never what he came for, to be king of heaven, to be king of all. But what he came here for was to save us, to rescue us. And he wasn't going to rescue us being king over all, everything, He was going to rescue us by giving up his life for our sin because that sin was the thing that was separating us from God. 
He knew that he needed to sacrifice himself so that we could all be saved. But can you see the allure of being in charge of everything? Man, you could do a lot of things that would be good. You could make heaven on earth, maybe if you're Jesus, right? If you just did the easy thing. It's like making a deal with the devil, right? What would you make a deal with the devil for? Hopefully nothing. But there's all sorts of movies on it that people have traded their soul, right, for fame and fortune and all sorts of different things, success and different things. You see people in this life not necessarily making that deal, but but certainly compromising things they know are true and right about God, turning their back on God to pursue essentially other gods. God wasn't moving fast enough. He's not doing it right enough for me because I have my own plans and so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So Jesus responds by that and he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He's saying it's always got to be God first. It's always got to be his purpose that I'm serving and right, Jesus came to, to serve the people by giving up his life for them. That was his calling. That was what he was being obedient toward. It wasn't to be king of this world. It was to be king forever and ever and ever in eternity. It was to provide a way for us to be saved. That's the value of Jesus. He's our savior. Not, he's not just a good moral guy. He's our savior. He rescued us from this life. And Jesus is just telling Satan, I'm going to follow God. I came here because he sent me on a mission. And I'm going to be obedient to my father no matter what temptations you throw at me. No matter what might be easier or what might be more fun. Certainly that would be more fun. But I've came to be obedient to my Father. I've came to complete this mission. I've come because he is first in my life. So not only is it important that we know that God's got us, that he has plans and he's working good things for all those who love him, it's important for us to know that we are to love him most. That's what it means to have a God. It means to trust him most. It means to love him most. And when we do... We're accomplishing his purposes. When we do, we're showing him our love. When we do, it's the better way forward. It's the less complicated way forward. It's the way that ends us up in in paradise because it's the life of trusting the one who made us. So Satan, I mean, these aren't insignificant things, are they? Making a deal with the devil to get ahead, right? Trusting something that, or, or taking matters into our own hands. We do that all the time. These are things that we fall into often in our lives. And then he goes on for a third one. And he took him to Jerusalem and he said, set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. I love this one, Satan's quote in scripture. Hey, it's right here in scripture, Jesus. I mean, I know the first two were a little wonky, but this one's right from scripture. You throw yourself from the pinnacle, you know God's gonna take care of you. You just told me, God takes care of you. Go ahead and do it then. Show everybody that you're Jesus. Show everybody that you're the Messiah. Show everybody, and they will put their faith in you. It will be awesome. Only problem is, is that God hadn't told him to do that, right? Hadn't led him to do that. And so Jesus responds by saying, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I was trying to think of an example of this. When I was doing youth ministry many moons ago, uh, we went on a trip to Atlanta, and they have an underground mall there. I don't know if any of you guys have been there. It's kind of a cool place. And we took the youth, and they were just running around having a good time. And, 
And in this mall, they had a fortune teller with, you know, one of those balls, magic, I forget what they call it, fortune teller balls, or whatever they're called. And uh, some of the kids thought it'd be cool to go test it out. Now, I had seen this, I forget what it's called, the magical ball thing. I'd seen this, and I said, guys, you remember that, that's, that God forbids that kind of stuff, and he forbids it because it's just a, a, a way for Satan to get into your life that you don't need to let him in, right? It's a vehicle into the spiritual world, and, and it's real, and it's powerful, and so just avoid it. Just don't do it. Well, my kids always listen to me perfectly, and so a couple of them totally disobeyed what I said, and they, went and they, uh, they did this when I wasn't watching. And they came back, and they reported to me their findings, they said, oh, pastor, it's just dumb. The lady said she couldn't even read my fortune, that there was nothing showing up. And I said, praise God for that, that he protected you. Now, putting God to the test then would be going back again and again and again, trusting that God would protect you from the evil one. Scripture says, don't put God to the test. Praise God for the times that he protects us from stuff. Praise God for those things. But how many times do we get ourselves in or we pursue things that we know just aren't right? Knowing that God's called us a different way. Knowing that what we're doing is dangerous. Knowing that we could fall and and get really messed up by it. God says, don't keep putting me to the test because one day I'm going to let you experience the consequences to what you're doing. That will be a bad day. Don't put your... Lord to the test, again and again. Remember when they were in the wilderness, right? They, God told them, go into the promised land. It was even something to go into the promised land. And they said, ah, oh, we're too scared. You know, the, the, the Achaeum are there. These giants are there. I mean, they will crush us if we even tried. And so Moses said, all right, we're not going in. God says, we're going to traipse around the desert for 40 years until every one of you guys that said no to God is dead. 40 years of pain and suffering going through this desert because you wouldn't listen to him first, because you wouldn't trust him. And what do they do? Well, let's go in then, right? God already said no. You said no, and we're going to go do this now. Punishment, right? And they said, no, let's just go in. And so they went in and they got creamed because they rebelled against the Lord. In Scripture, it said they put the Lord their God to the test, and God was not with them. So, so Jesus says, when Satan's just encouraging him to do one of the things that he absolutely could do, where, where God himself would send the angels to protect him, all these things are true. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There's no reason for me to do this. This is just grandstanding, and it might get somebody's attention for a moment, but it's not going to bring people to faith in the long term. I'm not going to do something that God has said not to do. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, this doesn't mean he waited until the Garden of Gethsemane. All the way through scriptures, you see demons showing up, right? You see people losing faith in the Lord. You see Satan at work powerfully all the way through the Gospels. Jesus is continually casting out demons, continually speaking his truth into the midst of confusion and all those different things. But Satan was just like today. He waits for those opportune times. He waits when we're unexpected. He waits for for when we're weak. And then he goes. Here's a question. In Luke 4, 6, it says, When the devil tells Jesus that he will give Jesus authority and glory over the kingdoms who who delivered the devil that authority. Well, technically, when God cast Satan down to this earth and kind of kept him from going back into heaven, Scripture talks about that, 
uh, Satan kind of took over. And he is the prince of the world. That's what it talks about in scripture. He has power over all the unbelievers in the world to affect all sorts of damaging things, as you can see today. You ever wonder why there's evil in this world? He is the author. You ever wonder why there's pain in this world? There is the author. You ever wonder why it's difficult and more and more people are walking away from God in this world? He's the author. He is constantly working in this world to destroy this world so that nobody goes to heaven. God intervenes with his son and says, uh-uh. I'm going to make sure people can believe in me. I'm going to make sure people get to heaven. I'm going to make sure that no matter what you try, no matter what you think you control, I'm going to take people home. It's an interesting thing, though, this dynamic for Jesus comes into this world. Now, did he have the power already? So Satan's really offering him something that he already has. I mean, Satan's no, really no competition for God himself. God speaks things into being. Satan can only suggest, right? Satan doesn't have power over you. Do you guys get that? Even, I mean, even more so as Christians. But Satan can do as he can tempt. He can put ideas in your head. He can say, hey, why don't you go try this? But did you know that he can't make you do anything? He can sometimes work in fear. If you've given yourself over to some of the demonic world, he can work in fear in ways that you can't imagine, but he can't force you to do anything. He can't force you to give up on God. He can't force you to do anything. He's impotent. He's still a pretty uh, scary foe, and he's still a very powerful foe, but God is always more powerful. And he works in deception, and so he's offering something that Jesus already has if he wanted it, but that wasn't his purpose. Um, all right, we're going to go on. And Jesus answered him, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so Jesus goes on this preaching tour. And the way synagogues worked back in the day is they, they would invite these preachers to come in and preach to them. And it always kind of started out with some Bible reading and then they would expound on that. And, and sometimes they get really famous people and sometimes it would be, you know, Billy Bob getting up there and, and reading the word and sharing. But it was, always, you know, it was always kind of taking what God had said and expounding on it. So lots of times it would be Pharisees and they were kind of the pastors of the day. But, but Jesus was invited. They had heard that he was a man of wisdom and he kept getting invited to go to synagogue after synagogue after synagogue to start preaching his word. And everywhere he went, they were blown away by the things he said. He was speaking with authority which is much different than a lot of you guys were preaching. Have you, I mean, you listened to a lot of sermons in your lifetime, right? Some guys preach stuff and you're like, okay, and then other guys preach stuff as if it's the word of God and it's real and you, you just need to embrace it and follow God and there's something different in the preaching. Some guys talk about God. Some guys let God speak through them. It's just different. And Jesus, man, he let the spirit just work and it went out from him and it's, it hit all the hearers smack dab in the middle of the head and it made them think and all were blown away. And at this point, all were singing his praises. Man, this guy can do stuff. Man, this guy makes a lot of sense. It sounds like the Messiah's coming. It sounds like he's maybe something like the Messiah and the stuff that he's saying and the encouragement that he's given and they were blown away by the things that he was saying. And then as he's doing this, he comes to his hometown. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. 
Now, just, it wasn't like Jesus just opened it up and picked this spot. It, the, the reading of the day was often picked by the synagogue master or whatever, they, I forget what they called him, but the synagogue leader, right? And so he would give him this text. And it was just interesting that this was the text for the day when Jesus was reading. I always get a kick out of that. I, I don't know if you guys know this, but in the morning service, I write my sermon six weeks in advance. So there's no way I know who's coming. There's no way I could know if you had a problem that popped up two weeks earlier. I mean, these things are in... But I'm always blown away by how God uses that stuff on that Sunday morning. I mean, I, I don't promise to be a good preacher or anything, but I, I know that God uses it. And, and I know that he preaches to people in their spots and in their lives and, and that he uses it powerfully. And that is such a cool thing. And, and that's what Jesus was doing. So, so he opens it up and here's this text. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set a liberty, at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Something a little too true about what was just being said there, right? And they were waiting on his next words. I love this too, and it's not just that he came to, to proclaim good news just to those that were financially poor, but poor in spirit, right? It talks about that in the Beatitudes, those that know they need a Savior because they know they're broken, they know they need saving. He sent to proclaim liberty to the captives, those that are captive by sin. Anybody ever watch somebody that's, um, that's struggling with addiction? In every way, they're captive to that sin that seems to control them. But it's not just drug abuse and alcohol abuse, is it? There's all sorts of sins, pet sins, that we seem to be held captive by that are complicating our lives because we can't seem to stop them. They continue to cause problems. They continue to complicate our lives. And we keep being captive to the consequences that they reap in our lives. And worse, we don't seem to be able to stop. He said, I sent, came to send... Proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom, and then recovering of sight to the blind. Blindness is always um, kind of equated in Scripture to a, a not being able to see the truth. And so he's promising to give truth and sight and, and, and understanding to those that are, are in the darkness. To set at liberty those who are being oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor that now is the time. The Messiah has come. Everything has changed. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Okay, so far so good, right? He's saying, man, God's doing something cool now. I may be involved, right? Everybody thinks this is going to be incredible. This is going to be amazing. And they, but then they said, is not this Joseph's son? You almost get the hint they're saying, uh, this is just Joseph's kid. He's saying some amazing things, but let's consider the source here. Where's he getting this stuff? Does this really have authority? I don't know where all this is coming from. And you get a sense of that because of what Jesus then says next. This doesn't seem to be the shrewdest way forward if they just were singing your praises. But Jesus sees the attitude of their hearts in the midst of this. And he says to them, Doubtless you will quote of me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Anybody remember when that was quoted? Anybody remember the passion? It was when he was on the cross, wasn't it? You healed others 
Why don't you heal yourself? Hmm. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. We've heard that you've done miracles. Show us, carpenter boy. Let's see if you're really the one that you say you are. Let's see if you really have the power that we heard about. You come with all this pomp and circumstance, but are you really him? And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I think there's some truth in that. I, you know, I grew up in Phoenix, you know, when I first came back, I think I've shared this in a few settings. I first came back, uh, I was called to St. Mark, and I was super excited. But my parents live in town, and my sister lives in town. At that time, my grandpa and my grandma, they all lived in town. And you know, the rush of my family to join St. Mark was zero. (laughs) I'm a pastor in Phoenix, why aren't you coming to our church? And they asked me one time, should we become members? And I said, you know, not unless I can be your pastor. Hey, I know that's hard because I'm your son and whatever. And they still remember. Now, think about this. They knew me last when I was in high school, essentially, right? Because I went to college, and then I went to seminary, and then I started being a pastor, right? All these things were transpired, even though it was like, you know, 15, 20 years or whatever it was. They still remember me as a high school kid. It's harder to hear that high school kid. Let me just acknowledge that, right? So I come back, and I'm pastor, and it took them a while, it took them a while for them to come. It took them a while for them to hear. Finally, my parents joined, and, and it was at a point where I could actually speak to them and they could hear God's truth. You know, my sister, I love her to death. She, she's one of my favorite people in the whole world. I would guess it's still hard for her to hear me. I mean, we grew up together. I know I look like a saint, but, you know, I was her brother. You know, so, so it's probably hard to, to hear clearly, Right? Grandma and grandpa took a while, but then they could hear. You know, it's just interesting in your hometown. I don't have any buddies that are coming to my church that I grew up with that are still here. I mean, why is that? Because they still remember you from yesterday. They, they don't hear as clearly because they're encumbered by the stuff of the past. It's the same with Jesus. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, it sounds like he's just making some, you know, okay points. It's like a sermon point. But these were fighting words and Mike alludes to it a little bit. He's saying that you're not hearing because you don't believe. Same was true way back in the day in Israel when there was a famine in the land because nobody would trust me, so I had to go to find a widow in a foreign land to send my prophet because that's the only place they would believe. A lot of people in Israel during Naaman's time, during Elisha's time, a lot of people with leprosy during that time, but nobody was listening to me at that point. Nobody would believe, and so I... I sent for somebody from another country that believed that I could do something, and I hailed him. Both these were times sort of shaming. He was shaming Israel and their ability to trust him over the years. This was a time where the Gentiles, right, the, the people that, and you have to understand the hatred that the Jews had toward them. In Israel, a lot of you guys we went through Exodus. Who were the people that tripped Israel up? Do you know? It was the nations around them that didn't believe in God, that were idolatrous, 
They continue to be a burr in their side. God said, wipe them out. They have sinned to the over, they have sinned to the cup is overflowing. It is judgment time. You were in 400 years in Egypt because it wasn't time yet. They hadn't sinned until their cup was overflowing. It is now. It's time for me to wipe that sin off the earth. I'm giving you their land. Please be my agent of justice. Hard for us to think in that world because Jesus came to, to, to love and to, to care for and to support, but this is God saying that evil needs to be rid from the earth and I'm going to give you their land in this place. If you do not do this, they will be a burr in your side and they will cause you to fall until I have to treat you as I treat them. So many years go by in Israel's history and what happens to the northern kingdom? Get caught up in idolatry because of the people around them. They fall, exiled to Assyria. People in Judah remained faithful, except for a few years later. They too gave in to the idolatry around them, rebelled against the Lord, and they too fell. That's part of Israel's past. It was the Gentiles' fault. Do you see how the victim mentality is? It wasn't our fault for doing what we knew was wrong. It's their fault for tempting us. It's not our fault for not cleansing them and, and, and wiping them out when we were supposed to. It's their fault for tempting us. So they were viewed as unclean. They were viewed as dangerous. Don't be around them. Don't go around them unless they cause us to fall and incur God's judgment again. They will never be part of us. When Israel came back to build the temple, they said, no, we don't want you have anything to do with this because you're corrupt and bad and we might catch what you got, right? So we don't want God's judgment anymore. That feeling kind of went along into the time of Jesus. And now what Jesus was saying is these people that they blamed for their destruction could be part of God's kingdom. And for whatever reason, that was fighting words. They, they could not understand how anybody could say something so horrible. Today, in today's world, we just don't get this, man. We want more and more people to go to heaven. We want everybody to come to heaven. We, I mean, sinners, you're welcome, right? This is a hospital for sinners. We can give you Jesus. We can give you healing. We can give you forgiveness. We can give you a new way forward. We can do all these different things because God is real and he's powerful and he loves you. Part of the hardness of heart Israel had developed was they just didn't see it that way. And so when Jesus said, I came not just for Israel, when they were singing his praises, right, but also because of your rebellion for others. It says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. It's hard for me to imagine in today's culture what could get you mad enough to mobilize to want to kill me. It's hard, right, by speaking God's truth. And yet I know there's things that I could say that would hit a little too close to home and would make you frustrated with me. Whenever I call sin on anybody, it's usually not something that they like to hear from their pastor. Why are you involved, pastor? Why do you care? I care about where you go. I want you to be in heaven. I, I care about rooting Satan out. I care about your health. I care about your maturity. I care about your well-being. I care about your family, your marriage, whatever. But I'm trying to help, you know. But when I call people on their sin... Lots of times it's not received real well. And I've seen that over and over in the ministry. Yeah, I could even have good relationships with people, but I give involved in that one thing that they've reserved and kept God out of, and I bring truth in it or shine a light on it a little too closely, and they can get mad. 
Frustrated enough to leave the church at times. Frustrated enough to, to call names at times. But I can't imagine anything that would have ever said that would get them ready to kill me. And just can we acknowledge that if you walk out of church and you're filled with a rage, a rageful wanting to murder somebody that probably God isn't working in the right way, right? That somehow you've missed his, his love and his gospel, that, that you've missed his truth somehow and got kind of sidestepped on something that Satan's doing? See, what should happen when we're confronted in sin and what should have happened here is that they should have cut them to the heart they should have realized, well, he's saying this because we don't believe he's the Messiah. Let's re-examine the things that he said. Let's re-examine the things that he's been doing. Let's re-examine his claims that he's the Messiah and look at him as maybe he is. But instead, they were not cut to the heart, but they were enraged by the very thing that always enraged them. You see this in the time of Paul. He was, he was with the people and they were mad at him because he was the guy going out and sharing Jesus and thus opening up the kingdom of God to all the Gentiles of their known world at the time. They couldn't stand it. So they go and they try to kill Jesus, but Jesus in his power just kind of walks through, you know, um, I'll take that back. My buddies tell me of different times where, uh, actually I have a couple of buddies that were actually hit by an elder. <laughs> they're, they're pastors. So I, I had to be a pretty heated meeting and stuff like that. But never to the point where they'd kill him, right? I mean, it's just kind of interesting. Anyway, all right. I don't know what was going on in that meeting. All right. Moving on. Where am I? Uh, we're on six, four, chapter 4, verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away, and he went to a town, to, or down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And again, they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Interesting that a demon's proclaiming exactly who Jesus is. I mean, the people of, Na of Nazareth wouldn't believe him, but this unclean spirit, this demon, shouted out with all its might exactly who Jesus was. It's interesting, when you walk through the Gospels, there's a lot of testimony about who Jesus was. John the Baptist testified that he was the Messiah. God's voice came down from heaven at his baptism, testifying that he was the Messiah. This demon, unclean demon, proclaiming as loud as his voice could go that he was the Messiah. God's word and his truth testified that he was the Messiah. His miraculous power testified that he, that, that he was the Messiah. Over and over there was testimonies about who he was. But people were still slow to believe. Now you wonder, why in the world would this demon proclaim Jesus? That seems to be working against their idea to not have anybody believe in him. What they were doing is they were trying to get out that he was the Messiah because this was a ripe time for people to kind of nominate anybody who would go against Rome. And if they could put up a Messiah as a king to kind of lead this rebellion, they were going to do that. And so he just wanted to speed up the process. They wanted to do something to force his hand. And Jesus still had a lot more work to do. So each and every time at the beginning of his ministry, when a demon or somebody else would claim him to be the Messiah, when he would do a healing of somebody, he would say, shh, don't tell anybody. And you know how well people keep secrets. 
So you'll see that unfold as well. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him to the, down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he com- commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Jesus was doing stuff nobody else was doing. Probably most have never heard an evil spirit speak. Fair, right? Now they hear him screaming and shrieking out of this person and Jesus confronting this demon as he does so and casting him out and now the kid's fine. It was blowing them away. He was backing up everything he said with God's power and they were confused. Could this be the Messiah? And he arose and he left. Oops, it's 6.33. We'll get to this next week. Okay. Um, Let me pray. God, we love you so much, and, and, and we thank you for your word of truth. We thank you for Jesus and the way he cares for us, the, his mission to come to this earth to save us. We thank you for his single focus in that, Lord, not letting anything dissuade him from his obedience to you. We thank him for his love for us. For that's why he came. That's why he was willing to endure all that he did because he knew it was the only way for us to be with him in heaven one day. And so tonight, Lord, we just confess to you once again our sin. We confess to you our need for you in our life. We confess to you our brokenness. We confess to you our confusion. We confess to you the the different things that are going on, the consequences to sin. We confess it all to you and cry out, Lord, save us. Be a strength for us. Be a wisdom for us. Give us the power to endure the struggles of life. Give us a power to keep following you. Allow us to see miracles and reconciliations and healings. Allow us to see you overcome one thing after another after another in our life, knowing that you got us as we walk through this very difficult life of ours. Let us never get up running towards you and trusting you with our life. Father, give us that strength. Give us that spirit in our life. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.